This is a special joint presentation by WNXP and WPLN, Nashville Public Radio. I had to be like 17, so I was technically too young to get up in there. Ron Gilmore is trying to remember when he started gigging at Love Noise Sunday nights. He'd gotten his musical training at Nashville School of the Arts, and he was just starting to put his chops to use playing keyboard for local artists. Every so often, a national act like Dwelle would arrive to play a Love Noise set at the bar car without their own gear. And that provided Ron with a different sort of opportunity. They rented my keyboard, man. It was like an old rose and broke it. And I was like, yo. And that was just one of the many stories, just things that would happen. After making the most of those love noise opportunities and taking every other paying gig he could get, he decided around 2010 that he'd hit his ceiling in Nashville. It was a destination for countless working musicians, but not those with his ambitions. So he took his keyboards and left. I remember moving to New York, people being like, oh man, you're from Nashville? They weren't impressed by where he came from until they heard him play. Gilmore, ladies and gentlemen. It was too easy. I mean, I moved up there, what, February? I met Lauren Hill and J. Cole by April. Ron's musicianship got him past his lack of connections and right into the backing band of hip-hop visionary Lauren Hill. He also made it to the inner circle of a keenly introspective rapper named J. Cole, who was just beginning his rise. If you comb through the liner notes of Cole's albums, you'll see Ron credited for writing, playing, or producing on many of them. I didn't know people that got me that gig. I didn't know them like that. They weren't my lifelong friends or nothing like that. I just met them. I keep my head high. I got my wings to carry me. I don't know freedom. I want my dreams to rescue me. That's when I was like, Nashville got it. When I was able to go somewhere else and succeed so easily, it blew my mind. Then he got to thinking about the next wave of talent emerging in Nashville in his absence and the difference it could make if they connected with experienced predecessors like him and proven partners like Love Noise. Every generation that comes feel like we're the first to do this. But then when you really get into it and look at the culture, you see it's not. It's people like me that were successful. We bounced. We were gone. So we left the generation. Figure it out for yourselves like we did. If Ron and others had found Nashville inhospitable to their hip-hop and R&B ambitions, what about those coming up after them? And what role would Love Noise play? L-O-V-E, Nashville, Tennessee. We're going to find out here in the fourth and final chapter of Making Noise from Nashville Public Radio. I'm Julie Height, senior music writer, and I'll be back in just a sec to introduce you to the next generation. Nashville Public Radio's Making Noise is the untold story of how a Sunday night party changed Nashville's live music scene. 
The show is sponsored in part by One Community, presented by the Tennessee Titans Foundation, Citizens Bank, and AT&T. I want to come back and really do things in this community when it comes to music. When Ron returned to his old high school to give a career talk, A.B. Eastwood was one of the students in the audience, a representative of the musical generation to come who was just beginning to imagine what his future could look like, especially with the right help. And he was so casual with saying, yeah, I'm working with J. Cole. I play keys for Lauryn Hill. You know, I was like, this is crazy. And he went here, he walked these halls. He, he had to do push-ups when he was late to class, like I have to do push-ups when I'm late for class here. I didn't even ask any questions. I was just staring. I'm just more enamored by the thought that this is even a lane. This is even a possibility. And it, it could come from right here. A.B. had seen another local success story. He'd just been a little too young for it to really yeah. register or to realize that Love Noise had anything to do with it. The live soul and hip-hop band was called Biscuits and Gravy. Most of its members were teenagers, but the drummer, who A.B. knew, was only 12. His name was Brandon Holt, and his percussion proficiency earned him the punny nickname Bammy Davis Jr., BAM for short. And he happened to be the nephew of Eric Holt, the guy with the promotion company Love Noise. Since the band was so young, Eric and the other Love Noise founders played the role of chaperones. There were times when they'd whisk their charges straight out the back doors of bars after performances. And they hooked the prodigies up with bigger opportunities, like a headlining slot at the annual Love Noise MLK Day Bash. Eric was there for the run-through. At the rehearsals, they did a whole mixtape of old-school hip-hop things live with the band. A lot of the beats were complicated. I remember the drummer crying, weeping, because he couldn't get it right. So the actual show, them executing perfectly and having like 40, 50-year-old men and women cheering them on and rapping with them. Biscuits and gravy made love noise, their folks, and their city proud developing into young pros as they open for the likes of Nappy Roots, Pharrell, and Kanye West. With Eric and his partners pitching in, the band got further than B. Hill had. You may remember from way back in episode one that B. Hill was the rapper Eric and co. managed before they launched Love Noise and began challenging racial barriers in the live landscape. Even if they didn't fully realize it at the time, by boosting biscuits and gravy, the Love Noise guys were demonstrating how they could use their Nashville clout for a new generation of contenders. In the late 2010s, I felt like I was witnessing the beginning of something a new generation of Nashville R&B and hip-hop hopefuls stepping forward, sharing their work, and tentatively seeking an audience. I could tell when I streamed their music on SoundCloud that despite having minuscule budgets, they were serious about what they were making, 
and wanted it to hold up next to music from anywhere. They realized that Nashville's music industry machinery didn't seem to be made for them, but they were becoming aware of friendly forces at work in the city. When I don't know no one around me. I'm not really shy, I just don't talk much. Yeah, I don't really party. I date into people, she said it ain't a party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm drinking some wine with some random girls. Bam and AB, who'd gotten into producing, started playing with their buddy Bryant Taylor as he developed his spectral, vibey style of R&B. Bam hadn't forgotten what his uncle Eric and Love Noise had done for his old band, so why not see what they could do on Brian's behalf? So I was like, bro, like, my uncle's got to hear you. So I would just play stuff for him, just spoon feed. He would pay attention, but not, not really. But just explaining to him, like, oh, yeah, this is my homie. It was like, oh, that's dope, okay. You know, that way that people respond when they're not actually listening. But the matter wasn't completely closed. My uncle has a knack of like asking me about people that I've played with or showed him. And one day, Bam's Uncle Eric queued up a Bryant Taylor track and asked if his nephew knew anything about this artist. And I'm like, that's the dude I was telling you about. That's my friend. From that point on, Bam made it his mission to introduce his uncle to the rest of his tight-knit inner circle, including A.B. Love Noise was like the only thing I saw that was like moving black music to like the really big stage. And so like on my mind, I'm like, yo, whoever Love Noise is, we need to find them. And then it made sense that it was his uncle. And I was like, aha! A.B. asked Eric to do lunch, and he tried not to let on when an effort it was to make the meeting. I didn't have a car. And so I don't even know if you ever knew this, but I walked to that meeting. You only had the funds to lift part of the way. But that meeting was everything to me. Because he just, he just asked me what I'm doing, who I'm working with, what we're doing. He was like, all right, cool, man. Well, I'll be in contact with you. We'll talk more. I walked my happy ass all the way back to my apartment. I was like, yes! It's no wonder A.B. was willing to hoof it to network with a figure who wielded influence in his hometown scene. He was part of a generation intent on writing, producing, and performing hip-hop or R&B for a living, but uncertain of how to get there. Fortunately, they were coming up in the Love Noise era, at a time when they had at least an ambient awareness of black artists headlining prime venues in Nashville. And they would soon be given a kind of coming out party. Love yours. Love yours. To me, that was like one of the defining moments of me coming back. In 2019, Love Noise and its corporate partner Red Bull invited Ron Gilmore Jr. back to Nashville to be the music director of a two-night series dubbed The Underflow. The venue was a cavernous club called Marathon Music Works. It just so happened that he'd backed his multi-platinum selling boss, J. Cole, on that very same stage four years earlier. But this hometown invite from Love Noise just hit different. For me, it felt like, oh man, I'm big time now because seriously, in my in my mind, Eric Holt. That name and the Love Noise name has always just been associated with these are the people in this town that are doing it. Ron enlisted A.B. Together, they would help oversee the weekend of shows featuring numerous artists, all of them from Nashville. 
And Ron wanted his involvement to send a message. I feel like that the most important thing that I can do is to be the biggest cheerleader for Nashville and tell everybody, look, this is what it looks like when you believe, when you commit. And A.B. couldn't believe how committed Love Noise was to filling out the underflow with largely untested talent from the local scene. Look, peeping out the window, keeping an eye over shoulder when you ten toes. I could tell you what you need and I could tell you what you want, but what you want ain't what it is, though. He'd made beats for, or at least hung out with, a lot of the singers and rappers on the bill. Petty, The Black Son, Daisha McBride, Brian Brown, Tim Gent, Jemiah. They were going to book a bigger artist and just do it like that, but Eric fought for it to be only Nashville acts, and it sold out. After the adrenaline rush of being part of it began to fade, a lot of the young music makers involved were thinking differently. How could they not? It was their first experience being treated as professionals whose music belonged in a 2,000-capacity venue. It was a six-figure stage production. Like, none of us have ever touched. None of us have ever been on, ever seen anything like it. We've gotten away with doing a lot of things not preparing, which is, of course, you do as a young artist, but this was like, no. There's a lot of money, a lot of effort and time putting in this. Like, we can't slouch. But it also showed that this man in this big company with his connections trusted me to execute. I was up there with a broken laptop. I don't even think I had a board at this time. Lord, I was winging it. I knew we were magic before this. But abracadabra don't work when it's meaningless. Shadow was really important. Shit you tell me, if not rapping and keeping us healthy. God is my, God is my plug. <laughs> what is this you trying to sell me? Eyeball it, no scale me, hey. But for me, this was the biggest thing ever. It was, like, it was the first time I think we all felt like this could be our career. That's a powerful conclusion to reach in a city where they usually only saw infrastructure supporting other kinds of careers. Even for a slightly more seasoned professional like Jemiah, who came to Nashville to pursue her musical ambitions, it was the kind of opportunity that had been out of reach. Is it too much for you? I don't get it, tell me, am I too good to you? Got the wrong impression, think I gave up too much. Jemiah had had a showbiz youth in Georgia, traveling for musical theater productions. In Nashville, she wanted to focus on her sleek, polished pop R&B. So of course she was going to make the most of the underflow. But it's like, I want to be an artist, you know, I want to sing my own music. For me, I was like, yes, this is like my first true opportunity to make all these big, crazy things that I see in my head come to life. I tell her that I've watched the behind-the-scenes clips she posted on YouTube. There's rehearsal tape, mm-hmm. there's choreographer working with you and, and two backup dancers. Yeah, right? I take performance extremely serious. How did you prepare? I was like, this is a legit show. I'm not getting up here and doing anything that's amateur. Yeah, it was weeks of preparation for sure, multiple rehearsals, because... I was dusty on my dance moves, so I needed to make sure I was looking right. Really wanna just start over. Can we be friends again? Cycle on in. Got me running around in circles. Now I'm dizzy spinning. 
was like a little life marker dressing room they gave me. I just felt like this is it. Like I'm respected, I'm noticed, I'm heard, I'm seen, I'm valued. I knew it wasn't the end, but I was thankful for that beginning. It's one thing to incorporate a bunch of performers into a major production like Love Noise did with The Underflow, but new artists like R&B singer-songwriter Lo Norell were asking for other kinds of support, too, for the chance to spotlight what they could do individually. Lo, who's close with Jemaya, got her first opportunity through Love Noise when she was in the Fisk Jubilee Singers. That's Fisk University's storied a cappella group. Love Noise helped arrange their rhyme and auditorium concert. Back then, she was still performing under her given name, Lauren McClinton. And when she recorded her first solo project, she wanted to book a release show. For any artist who isn't a household name, that's an important ritual part celebration and part industry showcase. I don't know what to say, babe. We on the wrong page, but you don't wanna leave. Now I'm feeling useless. Getting... Lowe had a good sense of how she wanted to present her music. She just couldn't secure a place to do it. I tried different venues and it just wasn't, I couldn't do it on my own, is what I started to realize. The ones she contacted weren't her first choice and they didn't book her show anyway. Her options were to give up or get help. She'd witnessed Love Noise opening doors for the Jubilee Singers and heard about them coming through for friends. So she decided to take her dilemma to Eric Holt. And the release show happened just as she'd imagined. I feel like that kind of catapulted me in a different direction in a way as far as just respect in the city. Take me back to the time I was with you when you whipped your first car in the fast lane. Take me back to the day we were at your mama's house in the back sneaking champagne. I thought that was really awesome of him and all of Love Noise. To take it seriously. <laughs> to take it seriously, especially just because I'm a black woman in Nashville in general. A lot of the times we aren't taken seriously. So to have a, an experience like that where I can come to him and be like, this is my vision and him being like, okay. Lo, Jemiah, AB, and a number of their peers had turned to Love Noise to open doors. But as Jemiah pointed out, that was just a start. It would take countless incremental steps and many cosigns from Love Noise to reach success. After a short break, we'll visit the prime Nashville real estate that's been the furthest out of reach for black music makers and a tougher territory for even love noise to crack. Here's a hint. It's downtown. I'm Julie Height, and this is Making Noise, a collaborative four-part series from WPLN and WNXP. Making Noise is the story of how a Sunday night party provided a safe space for black culture and shifted Nashville's live music landscape. Now, we're throwing our own Sunday night party, and you are invited. March 3rd at Analog inside the Hutton Hotel. Join us in recognizing the remarkable journey of Love Noise and amplifying the powerful voices behind the Making Noise podcast. 
Don't miss out on the opportunity to connect, celebrate, and reminisce. Get tickets at WPLN.org slash Making Noise. Nashville Public Radio's Making Noise, the untold story of how a Sunday night party changed Nashville's live music scene, is sponsored in part by One Community, presented by the Tennessee Titans Foundation, creating generational change, one person, one family, one community at a time, by giving all their energy to inspiring a positive and tangible impact through programs and partnerships. AT&T, driven by their conviction that connecting changes everything and actively working to help communities thrive in today's digital world. Learn more at att.com slash connected learning. And Citizens Bank, a community-minded, purpose-driven financial institution celebrating 120 years of empowering individuals, families, nonprofits, and small businesses to fulfill their financial goals. Learn more at bankcbn.com. We have officially come full circle. Way back in episode one, you heard about a newsworthy show that Love Noise pulled off in 2021. The one where the Nashville Symphony backed Nas at the Ascend Amphitheater. What I didn't mention before was the opener on that bill, hardworking local fave Tim Gent. When I first got the text about it, I was like, okay, I'm on. This is it. This is it. It's Nas. This is it. Tim trained for that set like he was about to go 12 rounds in the ring. So I fasted. I cut like certain foods out of my diet. I wasn't like drinking or smoking or anything like that. I like cleansed my body and like I was working out like... Yeah, I was literally, like, cleansing my body and mind and soul for that show. (laughs) Since moving to town from nearby Clarksville in 2017, Tim's made friends, including A.B. Lowe and Jemaya, and earned local respect for his technical rhyming ability and his way of lacing hardness with soulful perception. I'm seeing God in everything, making me a little more thankful. Right around, I'm feeling like the big chief. I'd have been a little more thankful. Money got a little more proper. When I first interviewed him, doing music full time was nothing but a distant fantasy. Tim stayed on his grind, and he amplified his efforts by linking up with Love Noise and bringing Eric on as one of his managers. That Nas show was the first time he invited his mom to see him. He'd avoided that for years for fear he might offend her with his occasional cursing. But this was too big to miss. Tim reserved his mom a seat with his fiancée, Jemaya. Yeah, that Jemaya. She understood what it all meant since she's an artist herself. I remember that moment being like very big for like just the city period. I do remember that feeling of like, wow, you guys brought something so big to people who don't have a voice sometimes. The backdrop of the show that Tim opened for Nas was the roaring revelry of Lower Broadway. The revenue generated down there in Nashville's dominant entertainment district accounts for a huge chunk of the nearly $10 billion that tourists spend in the city annually. 
Those four blocks of country-themed bars and restaurants serving up booze and bands that know all the numbers people want to hear? That's the picture the world associates with Nashville. It's why visitors make the trip. And the city goes to extraordinary lengths to accommodate them. A multi-phase construction project widened the sidewalks of Lower Broad and added diagonal crosswalks so that pedestrians can beeline to honky-tonks more conveniently. As you probably remember, that's the opposite of what was done to the Jefferson Street music scene. There's money to be made on Lower Broad, and it hasn't been easy for black musicians and bartenders to get their cut. A well-known drummer and DJ surveyed a few dozen of his fellow professionals of color about the discrimination and profiling they've experienced. The Nashville scene published his findings as a cover story. But it was a significant departure from business as usual when the National Museum of African American Music was positioned right at the head of the lower Broadway strip. This is a place where you can find all the musical history. Yeah. I think some people right. might be a Definitely. little surprised it's in so. Nashville, which is usually associated with country music, although in the last 10, 20 years, it's, it's home to all kinds of music. We like to say that this kind of brings the Music City brand in Nashville full circle. The museum opened in 2021 after decades of discussion, and years of fundraising. Love Noise pitched in with benefit concerts. And now, in downtown Nashville, residents and tourists alike can browse 56,000 square feet of gallery space illustrating the black roots of sacred and popular music. But Brian Sexton, the community developer who's worked in tandem with Love Noise, points out that its location is still in striking contrast with its surroundings. If I walk out the museum and I want to go to a venue to hear some R&B, I want to go hear some hip-hop. There's no way for me to go. That is almost a crime. At the opposite end of the strip is one venue that's occasionally filled that gap, Acme Feed and Seed. It's worked with Love Noise on a rooftop series for rising voices in local hip-hop, including most of the Underflow lineup. Acme has also partnered with other like-minded outfits to put on R&B songwriters rounds. And in early 2022, played host to Daisha McBride's release show. Love Noise set up DJ residencies for AB in that same club. 2021 was my favorite time for the residency because it was such a shock value thing that, like, we were black on Broadway and, like, happy about it and was doing really good numbers. Eric kind of opening up doors, like, the beginning of Broadway, it showed that like we can hold a spot. I've started daydream lately about having just a, a club or a bar where it's just strictly for rap, R&B, hip hop. 
AB's not saying, and I'm certainly not suggesting, that conquering Lower Broadway would represent reaching the pinnacle of economic impact and cultural prominence in Nashville. But it's inextricably intertwined with the wider world's perception of country music city as the civic brand. I don't get the sense that A.B. or his peers dispute that country music is an essential feature of their city. They just want their creative labor to bring them some of that prosperity and mobility too. In venues, offices, and studios all over town. Truly reversing the history of segregation in Nashville's music scenes would mean that the black innovators who were denied a space would finally gain access to any and all spaces and genres they want to be in. I've been selective in listing the triumphs and tribulations of Love Noise. Eric Holt and his crew have accomplished so much. They went from losing their first venue before they could even use it to pulling off things that hadn't seemed possible in Nashville. They've empowered two generations of music makers, and they're making more and bigger events happen all the time, like an arena show last September with Nas and Wu-Tang Clan headlining and a celebration of hip-hop during the city's official New Year's Eve bash. And you know how you can really tell they've left a mark on the live landscape? Love Noise isn't at all alone anymore. Nash Fields and Boom Bap and Analog Soul are among a growing number of series making hip-hop, soul, and R&B more readily available to Nashville crowds. Nashville's not the same place as it used to be. I mean, a lot of ways, it's way better. I mean, you have hip-hop parties all over town. You have big names, hip-hop acts that come to town and sell out and do well. So I appreciate whatever part we've played to help, you know, kind of push that forward. Believe me, I've pushed Eric to recount the details of the part that Love Noise has played like he never had before. Because it's as worthy of an oral history as the many Nashville musical chapters that are well documented. But it doesn't have an ending yet. I'm not about to try and sew it up neatly. Nashville is rich in music venues, but sorely lacking in black venue ownership. We're still waiting to see viable music careers materialize for most of the new generation going after them. And when you listen to artists in the Love Noise orbit, there is many different visions for what it would look like for Nashville's hip-hop and R&B scenes to progress further as there are people invested in them. The people that are going to take this city to the next level, whatever, wherever we need to go, got to know the real history of this place. And they got to know like where we really come from. Meeting people who believe in you as much as you believe in yourself is my ambition. From just on a base level, I just want myself and my peers to be able to feed themselves and their loved ones off their art. There needs to be more collaboration around creating black spaces for black entertainment and allowing that to add to the value of Nashville's story. We still aren't there yet. I can have these dreams, but I also have to think of the realistic part of it, of like, these are the resources I need, this is the access I need. I can't wait for whenever it is a time that a black act 
can demand that type of respect from the city where like the city knows it's that person's time. Love Noise and Eric Holt have extracted some respect from the city, but there's more to do. And Eric's matter of fact about sticking to the mission. One of the early slogans was love noise where expression is the only thing. The expression of black culture, the black voice, black music, black ideas has always been the base and cornerstone. It still is. The environment has changed. So maybe the way it's received or perceived has changed a little bit, but I think it's still needed. That's why Eric Holt and Love Noise aren't about to let up. Making Noise is a production of Nashville Public Radio. You can read more stories about hip-hop and R&B in Nashville and share this show with your friends by going to wpln.org forward slash making noise. I'm Julie Heights, senior music writer. There's no way that I could have made this show without editor Tony Gonzalez and producers Justin Barney and Marquise Munson. Additional editing and guidance from LaTanya Turner, Mariba Knight, Nicole Kemp, Jason Moon Wilkins, and Magnolia McKay. Fact-checking by Emily Siner. And there's a whole team that's helped with the logo, the website, the rollout, and an event we're throwing on March 3rd at Analog in Nashville. Thanks to Nicole Kemp, Rachel Yacavone, Mac Limeball, and Carly Butler. In this episode, you heard clips by Dwelle, Ron Gilmore Jr., J. Cole, Biscuits and Gravy, Bammy Davis Jr., Bryant Taylor, Jemaya, The Fist Jubilee Singers, Lo Norell, Brian Brown, The Black Sun, Tim Gent, Deja McBride, Namir Blade, and Nas. We also pulled from the Creative Commons of the Free Music Archive, where we got the tracks Moving Forward and Chills by Holizna. Yo, peace, y'all. This is Common. It only makes sense to be a love noise on Sundays. Stay on it, all right? Stay in tune. Good music.